0: This is Software Defined Survival, where we explore how software defined systems are changing the business of AV IT. Today, on Software Defined Survival.
1: Uh, It's not just designing uh, an AV architecture or an IT architecture, it's actually working with the end user to go through an accreditation process to ensure that the parts and pieces that you're connecting to their network uh, are not going to introduce any vulnerabilities. Uh, there's very few manufacturers out there that actually take the time uh, to provide uh, a secure means to deploy their, their solutions onto a network. Long gone are the days of, hey, we're just deploying a standalone network. Because if you're going to get into the federal space and into the federal market, uh, you can't just dip your toe in it. A commercial integrator that does and lives in the commercial or retail space, winning a government project and thinking it works the same way and has the same processes is gonna be in for a rude awakening.
0: Hello there, my name is Patrick Murray and welcome to Software Defined Survival. Today's guest is a veteran of the US Marine Corps and has over 20 years experience working in government and military systems on multi-level classification video conference systems, command and control, and operation centers, and really interesting stuff. And he is currently VP of Federal Practice at Unassailable Solutions. And this is a niche of the AV industry that I think is interesting for a lot of people. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion with Jason Jaworski. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me. Is there anything about that inter, uh, introduction that you'd like to correct or expand no, upon? Sounded uh, sounded on point. So I like to start out by hearing about the origin story because AV is kind of this niche industry and people don't normally grow up saying, I want to be an AV. So tell us, how did you get started in AV?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I think I have a kind of a very interesting story and I, d- I definitely grew up uh, not saying <laughs> I wanted to be an AV. Um, so Interesting path about and I got out of the Marine Corps in 1999 and around 2000 I was working for the uh, Defense Threat Reduction Agency and they had a requirement to build a uh, counterintelligence uh, briefing and debriefing center as well as a uh, Security Operations Center Uh, and the director of the counterintelligence uh, Director came came down to me uh, because at the time I was the physical security engineer and said hey Can you build one of these? Uh, And I said, yeah, sure, (laughs) it should be be possible. And uh, long story short, I went through the evaluation of different control room uh, solutions, which uh, included uh, Barco and Jupyter. And uh, I found uh, a company called ActiveView, uh, and it was a software-defined control room solution. And I evaluated it, and it met all the requirements that we had. Uh, So in 2000, I built two uh, operation centers to uh, support the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Uh, And then I took a uh, six-year hiatus from the uh, AV uh, industry. I was in the counterintelligence uh, and security fields. I was working as a SCIF accreditation officer, and I was accrediting a SCIF uh, in a government facility. And there was an ActiveView uh, solution in that facility. And it came under my purview to accredit that facility uh, and the systems that were in it. Uh, And so I was uh, working with ActiveView to make sure that their system was deployed uh, in those environments uh, for signal isolation and things like that. And uh, they ended up making me a job offer. Uh, And so in 2006, I uh, handed in my government credentials and got into the... Uh, control room and operation center market uh, with active uh, standing up their federal practice here in uh, northern, Virginia um, And that that's how I got into it Like I said uh, going from the security and counterintelligence field uh, Into the control room market and that's really where I've been
0: focused uh, since then nice story um, Technology in general has a lot of acronyms, but I think once you get into the military side of things, it's uh, times 100. So help us out here. What's what's a SCIF? Oh, sure. Uh SCIF
1: is a Sensitive Compartmented Information Facility. Uh, it's a facility used to process uh, intelligence information.
0: All right. And can you... Maybe give us a, like a brief overview of what that first system you did with ActiveView was like. like what, what does a, an operation center mean to you? When somebody says, build me an operation center, what are kind of the core elements of that?
1: Yeah, well, it can be a lot of different things, and it's very mission-specific. Uh, so there's, you know, there's never one, one means to, to solve every uh, mission's uh, requirements. Uh, so for me, in, in 2000, that very first system uh, it was pretty simple. Uh, the the Security Operations Center really wanted to be able to uh, display video from their CCTV system. And at the time, it was all composite analog video. Uh, So it was a bunch of uh, composite capture cards built into a video processor uh, for displaying those up onto a video wall so that the uh, officers uh, in the Security Operations Center as well as the leadership could get quick situational awareness as to uh, their facilities uh, within the uh, national Capital Region of, of Washington DC. Uh, so that was the main objective and goal of that uh, system. Um, and then the counterintelligence briefing their briefing center uh, had a very different role uh, really was for displaying dossier information on threats uh, posed to agents uh, deploying overseas that supported the Defense Threat Reduction Agency um, and to give them information about those threats um, and to debrief them on the way back out as to what threats they may have encountered, uh, why they were deployed overseas, um, and gather that information. So it was, it was more about displaying uh, information on individuals and on locations, uh, geospatial locations, you know, from a mapping application standpoint. Uh, but once again, it was fairly simple. Uh, not too many windows going on at the same time. Um, so that was those are the first two operations centers That I that I have. So overall, with any operations center, uh, though they all have very different missions, uh, in the objective usually is to gain situational awareness. Um, And in most operations centers nowadays, uh, the main component is going to be a video wall of some sort. Uh, But even that is starting to change to some degree. Um, So having you know a large scale video wall to display information, and so leadership can gain uh, that situational awareness. And now with, you know, high resolution desktops, you're seeing more and more where uh, operation centers are being deployed, where the video wall is for, you know, leadership to view from afar uh, to gain situational awareness without impacting the uh, operators on the watch floor. And the desktops are being used to support uh, situational awareness to the operator. So they can bring up you know, six, seven, eight, 10, 12 videos uh, on their, their own personal desktop monitors uh, instead of having to, uh, you know, have a dedicated piece of the video wall for each uh, portion of the mission that may be inside a, an operations center.
0: That sounds uh, pretty fascinating. A personal video wall that the resolution is getting that good, where, yeah, you could kind of shrink all of that down and still have enough detail for it to be useful. So you mentioned situational awareness a lot. Um, I'm guessing video cameras, things like that, street cameras, uh, maybe some TV feeds. What what are some other things that um, might surprise us? What what might be included? What kind of sources might be included in there? And what are the challenges on displaying them?
1: Yeah. So uh, cameras, and you know, nowadays more and more the camera feeds are coming, you know, to us. Uh, we're ingesting them over the network. Uh, so H. Two hundred and sixty four streams. Um, SDVoE uh, for those systems, uh, et cetera. Uh, so those come from video management platforms. They're not coming necessarily directly from the camera uh, that you're having to interface with. Uh, you are interfacing in some cases uh, with overhead assets uh, such as drones or UAVs uh, to bring in live feeds uh, to support you know the warfighter applications. Um, but in other cases, uh, even drone feeds uh, supporting uh, local law enforcement uh, is, is coming more and more uh, standard. Uh, the other type of feeds uh, would be like any uh, operation center. I guess I say like any because I, I do it so much, but uh, your know, applications that reside on uh, different PCs within an operation center, whether that be logistics, whether that be uh, overall situational awareness, you know, type applications, geospatial applications, uh, intelligence applications, whether that be SIGINT or UMINT. Uh, things of that nature's uh, just static images uh, being brought up into the video wall, uh, and and other you know source files being you know, played directly on the video wall uh, versus uh, playing them on a PC uh, and then you know sourcing the PC to the video wall, um, and and more and more you're seeing where end users want the uh, remote access to their PCs. So instead of having all your PCs under your desk uh, and in a military uh, uh, government application, a lot of times there's multiple classifications uh, so they can rack and stack all their PCs uh, in a data center uh, and use a remote KVM uh, functionality uh, either through uh, a network based solution or through a fiber optic based solution uh, like a think logical uh, or something like uh uh, a Crestron NVX or uh, a Matrox XDO, uh, things uh, of that nature are you know, kind of more and more of what uh, platforms you're seeing you know, within the operations center.
0: So um, you mentioned earlier the term signal isolation, and I think this has a lot to do with what you're talking about now. What you just described is easy to understand if the, the rack room is, is in the room next door. But I imagine that's not always the case. It may even be in another building sometime, uh, sometimes. So what are some of the challenges of managing that on a network and making sure it is secure and uh, doesn't really touch any other networks that may not have that security?
1: Sure. Well, the, the real challenge is, is that no two organizations uh, manage signal isolation the same way. Uh, so the method that you use for organization A uh, may not be the same that you use for organization B. Um, Even within a larger organization, you'd say, you know, the Army uh, or the Marine Corps or the Navy, you would think if you went from one Army installation to another Army installation that they would follow the exact same uh, guidance, right? And there are very specific guidelines out there for uh, separation of signals uh, between classifications of what they call red and black. But not everyone implements them the same, and every organization has the ability to uh, use their own jurisdiction as to how they're going to uh, implement those uh, guidelines. Uh, So in general, uh, there's a uh, people I use, use the three foot rule for processing. So PCs and anything with a processor in it need three feet of separation between them. Um, And then there's signal isolation on the cabling. uh, And that varies between what type of cabling you're using and where it runs and how it has to cross each other, whether that's fiber or whether that's copper uh, and you'll find, you know, like I said different organizations will use different methods. Uh, my my safeguard when I'm designing a multi-classification system is to always use fiber uh, until the customer tells me that I don't have to, um, and then you know we'll discuss the parameters of of you know, how that's going to go about and bringing the right people into the mix. Uh, because early on, uh, with any government implementation, you want to start talking about information assurance uh, and system security. Uh, so those involve different people, whether that be the the CIO or the CISO uh, or the ISO. <laughs> uh, so I'll, yeah, the ISO is the information systems security officer, uh, and what uh, rules they're going to abide by, and and so those can be the RMF, which is the risk management framework uh, for how uh, systems are uh, c- uh, controlled from a security standpoint, like the operating systems on different pieces, uh, and how they go about implementing RMF and and. The different networks, uh, so that's uh, that's all a big part of what we do. Uh, it's not just designing uh, an AV architecture or an IT architecture. It's actually working with the end user to go through an accreditation process to ensure that the parts and pieces that you're connecting to their network uh, are not going to introduce any vulnerabilities. Um, and and that's you know been a a big part of where I've always felt the AV industry has uh, fallen falling down on, uh, there's very few manufacturers out there that actually take the time uh, to go through information assurance processes and to uh, uh, provide uh, a secure means to deploy their, their solutions onto a network. Because uh, you know, long gone are the days of, hey, we're just deploying a standalone network. Um, I, I've been deploying enterprise AV systems since uh, 2005, 2006 timeframe. Um, and more and more, that's what the, the customers are going to. It's, uh, not these standalone. Uh, so they want to make sure whether it's a control system, whether it's a switch, whether it's a display, uh, that are all connecting to the network that when they run a scan on that network, that they're not going to find any vulnerabilities. Uh, and if they do, they want to know that they can be mitigated. Uh, so that's... That's part of uh, the challenges that that I face on a daily basis. And I go back to manufacturers and I say, "Hey, guys, you know, we scanned the software. We found, you know, same. We found these list of vulnerabilities. You know, how can we go about mitigating them?" Um, and and I give those examples because those are real world examples from a customer uh, for a command center that we're working on right now, uh, where they need those uh, vulnerabilities that were found uh, to be uh, mitigated.
0: That's a really interesting perspective. And um, I've heard this on this show before that most AV equipment really doesn't meet the security uh, requirements of um, many enterprise networks. Um, It may be a silly question because you listed a lot of them, but what are some simple things that a manufacturer could do to, um, to help you out more?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, what I always tell uh, manufacturers when I'm talking to them about the government market um, is to harden their box, their, their piece of equipment you know, prior to you know, it, it going out you know, to the market and, and provide some documentation and, uh, as to how you went about hardening uh, that piece of equipment. And did you use a third party testing company to go through it versus yourself? Um, and can you show me that if you're a switch, uh, that you have signal isolation? If, you're, if you have a network interface, can you prove to me that when I run a scan, that I'm not going to find any vulnerabilities? Or if I do, do you have a secure configuration uh, implementation guide that I can use? Because there are now some uh, devices that are on the network. Uh, and I'll use one, for example, uh, the NVX. I just did an NVX deployment. Uh, it had like seventy NVXs on there, and, and they they have the ability to to be secure, but you have to know how to set the uh, to configure the units so that they are using the secure settings, whether they're using encryption on SSL and TLS, uh, that their passwords are protected, and that their passwords meet the guidelines, uh, that they're getting updated, that they're part of Active Directory. Um, all these sort of things uh, can really help me. So. I I encourage the manufacturers, all the AV uh, manufacturers that have any sort of network interface uh, to engage a third-party information assurance company and help them uh, lock down and harden their products uh, before releasing them and then provide uh, secure configurations uh, for the integrators to use uh, so that they have some level of assurance that when they deploy them on a customer's network, uh, they're not going to introduce any vulnerabilities. And, and once again, what that said is since every single customer has a different set of guidelines or or interpretation to guidelines of how they're going to implement security, uh, you're never going to have a, a foolproof means. And I always tell manufacturers is if you're going to get into the federal space and into the federal market, uh, you can't just dip your toe in it. Uh, it's, you're all in or nothing. And it's not a, a once and done. There's no... Uh, one time get get a uh, approval and forever your product uh you know meets all the requirements it's a continuous updating because as we know there's constant vulnerabilities coming out uh to for security uh technical security from a signal uh, and tempest standpoint uh as well as and very much more so from the information assurance and over the network standpoint you know addressing uh viruses and malware and things of that nature so uh, I I want manufacturers to to jump in, stay in, have a a a person at the manufacturer that knows how the secure configuration works, and have that person be you know the point person to in, interface with that third party uh, testing company to ensure that they they're uh, deploying a a solution uh, that's going to meet the the government's needs.
0: Thanks for that. That was uh really insightful and. Yeah, I, I like the way you didn't put too fine of a point on it that it's it's hard work if if you want to um, be involved in this space. And I'd imagine the same thing would hold true for integrators as well, that they'd have to really dedicate themselves to being a, a part of that industry, that niche.
1: Yeah, very much so. You know, you'll find that there are integrators out there that know the federal market uh, and can canly know the lingo. Uh, They know what to look for. They know how to, and it's, you know, from a, uh, from an integrator standpoint, they know the contract vehicles to use to get partnered up to win projects. Uh, But then they know, you know, the security protocols for for just getting in a building. Uh, You know, a a commercial integrator that does and and lives in the commercial or retail space, uh, winning a government project and thinking it works the same way uh, and, and has the same processes uh, is going to be in for a rude awakening. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, it does not work the same and it does take a, a special s- uh, set of skills, uh, to operate as an integrator in the, in the federal space. And what you'll find is, uh, in the, the integrators who are successful, uh, in the federal marketplace, uh, a lot of them have previous, uh, military as their employees, uh, that came out of the government space, uh, that help them navigate uh, in that in that federal market um, and and I think we we talked about before we started the recording is is having clearances, right? So you have to uh, have you know people on your staff that have a clearance, you have to have the company itself cleared uh, and it's uh, that's a process in itself. Uh, so yeah, very much so. Uh, Integrators that have a federal group and that are focused on the federal market, know the lingo, know the requirements for uh, information assurance, uh, TAA compliance, trade compliance. Uh, not, you know, in many cases, you're not allowed to use uh, products that are manufactured uh, in China uh, because of you know, technical threats and, and because of the trade agreements that are in place. Uh, so, you know, those are things to know. Uh, and, and just accessing those facilities, what's expected of you at those facilities uh, in secure environments uh, and knowing operationally. A lot of times in the command center space, uh, we go into an operation center uh, and start working to either update, upgrade, expand uh, uh, the tech the AV technology that's uh, in that space. Um, and real world things start happening uh, that require us to get out right then and there, <laughs> regardless of the clearance level that we have. Uh, and you know, a, an integrator that's, uh, fairly focused is used to those sort of th- those disruptions is, Hey, mission comes first. Uh, and when, uh, a, a real world scenario happens and that operation center gets stood up and activated and things start happening, you got to leave and that you may leave for 10 minutes. You may leave for 10 hours. You may leave for 10 days, uh, depending on how long that is activated for until they can, uh, basically give you back you know, the space to start working in again. Uh, so you're dealing with the the disruption that comes with, with, in the operation center space uh, is also part of, of that, and it's it can be very frustrating. I talk to companies, and some choose because of the frustration not to get into the federal space, and I totally get it uh, because either, like I said, you're in or you're out. Uh, you can't just dip your toe in it.
0: Interesting. I, I I really I've got two anecdotes about that. I mean, the example you gave was was pretty extreme. That when something happens, they need to use uh, the rooms for a crisis situation, but um. I remember I was on a project once and we needed an escort to work in the room we were working in. And the first thing is you can't take your phone in there. So if one of your technicians, if your smartest guy is working on that project, he is offline. You cannot get in touch with him for that day or days that he's there. And um, one of my colleagues went to the bathroom by himself one day and they didn't like that at all, that he just got up and... Took a pee on his own accord, so um, <laughs> there's yeah, there's very practical things that you need to be aware of, um, and it's uh, it makes a big difference on on um, how you're going to approach these projects. Yeah,
1: I think that's a great point. The, the, just, you know, the simple fact is a lot of people ask me why I carry a notepad. Uh, and they're like, hey, you know, we all use iPads, we all use tablets to do our work. And I'm like, that's great. But in the spaces I go into, I can't have my phone, I can't have a tablet, I can't bring my PC in. You know, it's 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 an old-fashioned tape measure uh in my my notepad, and that's how I that's how I go to meetings because of the restrictions on cellular technology or any. In some cases, you know, I have a GPS watch. I can't even bring that in. Or a Fitbit that all every, all your electronics have to come off. Um, and that just goes with the, I guess for me, I'm so used to that uh, because I've been doing it my entire career. Uh, it comes second nature. Whereas uh, a commercial person, uh, focused would probably, uh, you walk into it and be like, Oh my God, I I thought I was going to be able to bring my laptop. I thought I was going to be able to bring my phone. I have these applications that I need to use. So a lot of times when we're talking with, uh, customers in a, in a secure space, you know, we start talking about those things early on is, hey, are you going to provide us internet access inside of your facility? Uh, do you have a laptop that we can use to connect to your network or multiple laptops if it's on multiple networks uh, to talk to, you know, for programming purposes or for configuration purposes, you know, your DSP files, your configuration of your encoders and decoders, uh, and control applications. So yeah, those are all good points that it, it, which makes it more difficult. They're, they're a lot more time consuming uh, to implement uh, uh, a inside of a secure facility uh, because you don't have access to, to people uh, while they're there. It's kind of a, it's kind of a dark hole. <laughs>
0: Yeah, interesting. So on the one hand, you've got all these limitations and restrictions put on you. But on the other hand, I'm sure that the latest technology is also what um, wants to be what they want to use and take advantage of. So um, can you tell me a little bit about how maybe the role of software and networking has changed over over the years in these kind of spaces?
1: Yeah, well, for me, uh, coming from ActiveView, uh, which is a software-defined Control room solution. That's where I got my start, um, and they are a pure software solution. They develop software uh, and deploy it on standard servers, standard PCs, and they don't label uh, or brand any of those. Uh, so for me, I've and they've had their own control software. So much like a, a, a utility, uh, I, I thought ActiveView was doing what utility did um, twenty years ago. They've always had their own their own uh, Software-defined control platform that ran on a PC that you could access from from uh, access through a web browser that was just based on simple Visual Basic scripting. Uh, So that that's all I really ever knew prior to uh, leaving uh, ActiveView and coming into the the rest of the AV market. You know, for me, lots uh, there hasn't been a whole lot that's changed. I've always liked that model, and I've tried to continue to use uh, that model to use the the network, uh, to use the enterprise to integrate. Solutions into Active Directory, uh, and to not be these standalone uh, stovepipe solutions. Uh, there are uh, many more uh, software-defined control systems now, uh, and I mentioned Utility because I've done a few deployments with them, uh, and I love their model. Uh, it makes a lot more sense than having that that black box that the customer has to call in a a programmer to support whenever they want to change versus, Hey, I can go into a web browser. I can add a new device. I can remove a device. I can change devices. I can change the look and feel of the user interface. um, And I can do that on my own with my own IT guys uh, that, that I have on staff. Uh, So that's where I, I do think things are starting to change uh, more so within the industry as a whole, uh, for me, like I said, I've been doing that for a long time. And uh, so I'm glad to see that people are, are catching up.
0: <laughs> That's interesting. That's a, it's a funny take. So what it sounds like is um, software defined systems for you just means more flexibility. Absolutely.
1: Uh, not being tied down uh, to a single manufacturer and, and not being tied down to an integrator either, uh, where I have to rely on them every time I need uh, something changed. So yeah, having having that flexibility is huge, um, and you know my my first utility deployment was just that. Uh, I had a customer; uh, it was an army customer, uh, and they said, "Hey, look, uh, we have a Crestron system, and they had no issues with Crestron itself, but they found it hard to obtain the funding they needed to make changes to their control system when they wanted it." Uh, and they said, Hey, do you, do you know of something else that we could use that wouldn't require any programming? Uh, and I kind of scratched my head and I had remembered, I'd, I had talked to uh, a friend of mine, I'll give him a shout out, Shane Myers. Um, and he had told me about Utelogy. So and I couldn't remember the name of the platform. Uh, so I called up Shane and I said, Hey, what was the name of that platform you were telling me about that didn't require any program? And so he told me about Utelogy. So I gave Frank Pelkoffer a call. Uh, And he was very skeptical of me at first uh, and my intentions. I think he thought I was trying to get some information out of him, but uh, my intentions were true. And we ended up deploying uh, the first, well, my first uh, system within uh, the the government uh, with Utelogy and it's still there today and it's, it's working fine. Uh, And so, yeah, it gave them a ton of flexibility. They have two AV support technicians on site. Uh, They got trained up on Utelogy and after the deployment, uh, they continue to support it and maintain it.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Frank's a great guy. He's been on the show before and uh big advocate of software defined systems. What I like about that story is that um, it, it goes back to this whole processes and systems and understanding how uh, the federal space works. They couldn't get the funding to send a guy like me there to change the programming. Yep. and And that's where the software, so it wasn't really the technology itself. It was just really the, 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 you know the steps to getting a change done is is what was holding them back, and was the argument for something software defined. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Are you, are you working on anything interesting in the now or in the future that you'd like to share with us?
1: I am working on things that are interesting. Um, unfortunately, because of the nature of the work we do, which is also a downside, there's not a lot of marketing I can I can put out there about what I'm working on uh, currently. You know, a a lot of times in federal contracts, there's a a clause of, of no marketing. So you can't necessarily go out and say, I worked on, you know, customer ABCs, you know, system and here's what we did. Uh, without getting uh, permission from you know the 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 legal team at whatever organization that you're working at. So a lot of times uh, any marketing is very generic in nature saying we did a DoD deployment in this general region of the United States or overseas, and we use these general technologies uh, because you know, they don't they don't want people to know exactly what technologies they're using, uh, why they're using them, um, and and who they're working with. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately I'd, I'd love to share. I've done some really great projects. Uh, and for me, uh, it, it, that's the reward is the frustration is there, but the reward at the end is knowing that you're actually help keeping people safe, uh, is huge. You're helping, you know, so I still have plenty of friends that are in the military and plenty of friends that are in our government, uh, that put themselves in harm's way every day. Uh, and knowing that, you know, I'm providing their leadership and operations center to help, you know, provide them better information to make better decisions, uh, that hopefully will help keep them safe and keep in, in protecting, uh, the assets of the United States uh, is, is awesome. That that's a great you know, thing is a lot of times I can't tell people where the systems I put them, but knowing that they're doing great things is, is pretty rewarding.
0: Excellent. That's great stuff. I really think that uh, that is um, something that keeps a lot of people going is is seeing their systems in in operation and knowing that they they have a real world effect. It's not just a meeting room that uh, that collects dust somewhere. It's it's something that is used and actually, yeah, in this case, helps protect people and keep them safe. So we've mentioned a few times in in, in this uh, in this interview here how how complicated and difficult it is to navigate navigate this federal space. Where would somebody go, a manufacturer an integrator, if they were interested in maybe just looking around and seeing if this is for them? How how would they go go about getting starting with doing that? Where could they turn to for some help?
1: Yeah, so we offer, uh, I unassail- don't unassailable solutions. We offer business consulting uh, services to manufacturers and to. Uh, other integrators that want to get into the federal space Uh, they know it's alphabet soup they're trying to figure out what all these acronyms are they want to get their products accredited where do they go to get accredited what accreditations they need how do they go about that process what are the third party labs that they can go to to get their products tested and evaluated Um, and who do they need to talk to in the government uh, to get their products approved uh, for uh, any approved products list, so yeah, uh, we're we're happy to help. Uh, we've offered our services numerous times to different manufacturers uh, to get them started uh, and where to go to get uh, those services, as well as where to find uh, cleared people uh, that want that can support uh, these federal projects uh, in the classified space. Uh, so it's it's not always just about you know, understanding it, but also needing and having uh, the people and the resources uh, that can support the customers once you do get into the market.
0: Is there a, if somebody would like to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that?
1: Sure. Uh, best, you know, I'm a big uh, LinkedIn user. Uh, I'm on there all the time. Uh, so they can always look me up on LinkedIn. Uh, you can also go to uh, our our company's website, which is unassailable Uh, that's, it's a company that's run by my, my wife and I, so, uh, you can look to see kind of what we're, uh, our main focus is and when, where, where we're, where we're doing business.
0: Excellent. Jason, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks Patrick. If you or anyone on your staff ever considered themselves just an AV programmer, join the club. That's how I used to feel. I was just an AMX programmer or just a Crestron programmer. Whatever language of your choice is, whatever it may be, there's generally this feeling in AV that we're not capable of using modern programming languages. And it simply isn't true. Sure, there's a learning curve, but once you get through it, all other languages become easier to learn and it just expands the amount of options you have when designing a system. It's not an either or decision. You don't say, I won't be using these manufacturer tools anymore. It's just, you have a broader palette to choose from. And here's what Mark Day, founder of IdeaBox, had to say about his experience with the online courses at LearnAVProgramming.com. You know, Patrick, it's funny how the smallest things can sometimes
2: be the start of really big ideas. Uh, Before I took the LearnAVProgramming.com courses, I was in that proprietary, I'm only a control system programmer kind of mindset, right? Uh, When it came to new technologies or current technologies like JavaScript or, or things like that, for some reason, I thought that was different from what I'm doing. And what taking your courses flipped for me was not so much what I learned technically taking the courses, it was the mindset of, Oh wait a second! I'm already doing 99% of what some of these most modern programmers are doing. I just have to learn, uh, you know, the other one percent, and that's really what I did. So it's really been kind of a big change after taking the course. Um, and I would really recommend this course to any integrator. Not only will it obviously help their skill set, but more importantly, it might change their whole mindset. Uh, which is more important, and and really show them new opportunities, open the door, so they kind of see problems through a different lens. Uh, I got to tell you, one of the the biggest changes for me was, as soon as I taught myself HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and saw the UIs that I can make with those technologies, I I, I just couldn't sell a uh, Crestron touch panel again.
0: Mark is a great example of somebody who takes new information and really applies it. I know that Mark still sells a lot of Crestron equipment, but for him, for his company, for his customers, for his business, he needed a better UI. He needed another option for a user interface, and modern programming allowed him to do that. So the question is, how can you use modern programming to improve your business? Please go to learnavprogramming.com and wherever you see a sign up button, go ahead and sign up and you'll get some free information to get a feel of my learning style and what kind of information is available. And of course, it would be an honor to have you enroll in one of our courses and help you upgrade your skills and take this industry to the next level. Thanks for listening to Software Defined Survival. I hope you found it useful and maybe it inspires you to try out something new this week. If you have any questions, Go to softwaredefinedsurvival.com and click the appropriate button. I'd love to answer your questions on the air. And if you'd like to help spread the word, please subscribe, comment, and share it with your friends. Thanks.